night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Uh, joining me this morning is author and breast cancer survivor, Laura Holmes Hayded. Laura's new book, or her book, actually the book has been out for a while, is called This is Cancer, Everything You Need to Know from the Waiting Room to the Bedroom. When Laura was 37 years old, she was diagnosed with stage four inflammatory breast cancer. Through her three-year treatment journey, she realized that there was so much more to a cancer diagnosis than the medical stuff. This is Cancer is the thoughtful, informative, and sometimes entertaining result for those who prefer their pathos with equal parts humor, reality, and a touch of flair. As a patient advocate, she has been a speaker at the American Cancer Society's Relay for Life and Discovery Gala events in San Francisco. She's a former cookbook editor at Simon & Schuster, whose work has appeared in TravelAndLeisure.com and numerous other publications. Welcome to the show. Uh, Nice to have you here, Laura. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, we had like, what, a minute and a half to talk before the uh, we actually got on the air. And you just, the, the one thing you said struck me. You thanked me for having you on the show. And then you said, you know what? People really don't want to talk about cancer or the C word even. And so it's difficult to get people to, I guess, talk honestly, I think. And that's what you point out in your book, to really talk about the real stuff, which is what your book is about. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you, I mean, the C yeah, word, you know, it's. Equal parts fear, um, and no one wants to talk about something that's so scary. I think, um, yet it's all around us. And I think the other thing is, and you were so young when you were diagnosed with cancer, thirty-seven years old, young mother, uh, probably a completely. You should describe it to us, but like a total surprise. I mean, why don't we start with that when you were first diagnosed? Of course, um, it was beyond shocking. Um, I was just finish, finishing nursing our 14-month-old son. Um, I'd finished nursing around 10 months. Um, our daughter was four, and I had just turned 37, and I had been you know, perfectly healthy. I always say I ate my broccoli, I exercised, um, and then I started having pain in my left side and in my breast and my chest. Um, but I think as any, you know, busy person, especially a busy mom and women in general, you know, we, I just soldiered on um, until the pain was so intense that I went to the doctor. Um, my GP, she said, you probably have mastitis, but go to a breast surgeon just to be sure. And a week later, I went to the breast surgeon. She took one look, did an ultrasound biopsy and mammogram. And four days later, the day after Thanksgiving in 2012, I was told, I had stage four inflammatory breast cancer, um, 11 centimeter tumor in my left chest, and um, it had affected uh, 20 lymph nodes and a rib as well. So, what you, I mean, that kind of a diagnosis was terrifying, I would assume. And you, you know, I guess suddenly entered a new world. I think you described that in the book in a way. You know, this kind of the book, not kind of this, the before and after. So, what did you? Yeah. What did you do when she said that? What, how, how did you feel? I mean, you are so immediately launched, just like you said, into this other world. And when I decided to write about it, I call it Cancerland because there's really no other way to describe entering this completely foreign world with its own language, its own social norms. Um, and you, know, you wake up and you're in it um, suddenly. And obviously I was completely terrified. I mean, that's really the emotion that 
uh, that carried me through that first week. Um, I was given between two and five years to live. It depended on the opinion um, of which doctor. And my first thought, honestly, though, was I'm not ready to go. I can't leave my kids. Um, And so then trying to replace those feelings of terror with, okay, what are we going to do? Let's, let's, let's start treatment. So how long does it take you to be able to do that? I mean, uh, yeah. Oh, (laughs) I I make it sound so easy, um, but I was so unprepared for the emotional part of a cancer diagnosis. Um, I felt so many emotions that completely surprised me. And I would say to completely accept what was happening, I mean, it took probably six months at least, um, and then to also accept that my old life was gone and that it wouldn't just restart after treatment, that took years to understand. So you're never going to go back to the normal or what you considered normal before, right? I mean, that there's a new normal um, and six months. Yeah. yeah. And there's a new normal physically as well as mentally um, and emotionally. Obviously, you come out, you know, on the other side um, with a whole new outlook. Um, obviously, everyone learns different lessons and, and um, deals with it in different ways. But um, I think that letting go and saying, okay, this is a, a distinct chapter in my life, and it's the after cancer. Hopefully, everyone has that experience. But um, the after cancer chapter is quite different, obviously, than than before. You know, when you wrote this book or you say um, you wished you'd had your book to read to go through this cancer and you don't like to call it a journey, but a trip, a horrible trip, (laughs) but journeys. Yeah. Um, So what is it about your book, let's say, that's very different than the cancer, other books about cancer and uh, the, the stuff, as you say, you sit in the waiting room and there are pictures of, you know, people who have been diagnosed with cancer sipping tea with their oncologist or whatever. That's not what your book is about. No, as you point out, I, I wrote the book that I wanted to read. I wanted something that gave an honest perspective. I wanted real tips. I wanted to be informed. Um, I also wanted to laugh a little bit. Um, you have to bring laughter in at some point. Otherwise, it's just it's too hard to go month after month um, through the cancer experience without letting in a little bit of light. Um, and what really sets my book apart are those details. Um, there are so many little details that make a big difference in the quality of life for a patient, and they're not often brought up or discussed. Um, just little things like making sure you have a pillow in the car after a procedure, if you have a procedure on your chest or even um, putting one under your seat um, before you put the seat belt on to protect yourself. Um, little details like that that you know, get passed around from survivor or nurse, but no one, there's really no one place to look up all those details. But one of the other things you said too, this is more, uh, well, this is the emotional part, but you said um, you'll, you'll be surrounded by people, but sometimes you feel lonely and alone because um, people are, you know, people love you. They're there to support you, family and friends, but they don't always say the right thing. And, they're, and, and as you said, they're afraid to say things that might be 
negative. They try to, I, I don't want to, because I, I, I've have, unfortunately or whatever, I've had a lot of friends and family who have been diagnosed with cancer and people sort of tiptoe around even when they're trying to give you support. I think that's an excellent point. Um, the tiptoeing and the feeling as a patient of you, you expect certain things, you kind of expect emotions and people to say certain things, and when they don't say those things, it's very frustrating. Um, and you, it's so isolating as a patient because, as I said, you, people are around you, but more, more often they're around you physically and not really with you on your the emotional side of it. Um, and in terms of what people say to you, you know, of course they mean well, but the things that come out sometimes are, <laughs> I mean, you have to laugh. Um, and so what I always say is just, if you don't know what to say, just say, I don't know what to say. You know, send a, send a card and, and in the card say, I don't know what to say, but I'm here for you. Um, that alone can be so comforting. So well. Do they say that you have had to laugh at that things like don't say when you're with a friend who's been diagnosed with cancer uh, or a family, you know, someone in your family, what should you not say that sounds ridiculous or that sounded ridiculous to you? Like, oh, people said, um, particularly because um, I had breast cancer, um, things like, oh, well, at least you'll get a new pair of boobs at the end of it. And um, this, you know, this is the new normal. And um, a lot of it'll be okay, you know, don't worry, things will work out, Um, just, or also just the most basic, like, how are you in that really, you know, sad voice where they don't really want to know, you know, it's (laughs) like, the better way to say it is, what are you feeling right now, you know, that really shows that you're listening, Um, but again, you know, you can't fault them, they mean well, but um, I always say, just take a Take a breath before you, before you say the words, just to make sure that they're going to come out okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that I've I, I can uh, I've heard that I've had several of those comments like how are that how are you how yeah. are you yeah. Um, what about your spouse? Because that's very different in the relationship that you have or that you've with him. I mean, because then everything changes. Because I mean, you know, one of the things you've mentioned and um, that. You know, when you go through chemotherapy, that it, obviously, it, the, the effect that it has on your body, but I, I didn't realize that if, that it affected you, in a, like, say, when you're young, sexually, that it could affect you for not just while you're having chemo or a few months afterwards, but for years afterwards. So that has to have a, yeah. It's another part of the cancer experience. You you can't even imagine that it will affect you know, things in the bedroom, so to speak. Um, I mean, with your spouse, your partner, it's so difficult. Obviously, you're launched into a different part of your relationship where they are your caregiver. Um, and luckily, I had other people to help out. But if, if, your, if your partner is your sole caregiver, the stress of that is enormous, um, obviously. And as if you have something that goes on and on, obviously, the stress um, takes a toll because you don't have, you're not in a situation to keep up intimacy and other parts of, a, you know, a normal relationship. So that can be very challenging. And I, we really benefited from seeing a counselor. Um, I can't say that enough. I think that's so important to um, make 
make that a priority um, and try to do something every week that has nothing to do with cancer, even if you just go to the movies or, you know, grab some coffee and hold hands, you know, try to keep up something of a normal element of a relationship. Yeah, I think, well, for the first thing you said, going to a counselor probably should be the first thing on an oncologist list to tell you to do that, that that's part of the treatment, that's part of the plan, or part, you know, so that it gives people permission to do that who maybe wouldn't do that, go to counseling ordinarily or would be afraid to do that. Um, yeah. Yes, I, um, I found out while I was writing the book, um, speaking to a lot of oncologists, that actually one of the first um, prescriptions they often write to someone diagnosed with cancer is an antidepressant um, because obviously people are overwhelmed. Um, you know, the the emotional state is you have to you have to treat the emotional state as well. And now, fortunately, a lot of oncology centers also have licensed social workers and um, you know whole patient teams that can help you um, with the emotional mental side of it. And I. Um, I started seeing a therapist almost within the first week, and it helped enormously. I would imagine that you know cancer is a cancer diagnosis, a breast cancer diagnosis is is different for someone thirty seven as opposed to someone sixty seven or seventy seven. You're in a different stage of your life, and here you know, as you say, you just finished nursing your baby, you had a four year old, um, and you know, a, you're young, your husband's young, very different than his expectations maybe for being a caregiver, as you described, than for someone who's like, say, 70. And that, yes, know. I don't think anyone thinks in their 30s you're going to be um, taking care of your spouse. You know, you're going to face potentially um, losing your spouse. And uh, obviously you're in the midst of um, your career um, with the children, um, adding to that stress of not only what to say to them, but just their, their needs. Obviously, you know, as we say, they need, still need to go to their ballet class. The, the lunches still need to be packed. Um, and that's when, that's the sort of issue that I really wanted to bring up in the book, is these are what I call modern elements of cancer, um, that more young people, unfortunately, between the ages of 20 and 39, are getting diagnosed. And so many of them have children. And we need to look at the patient, you know, obviously their physical being, but also what's going on when they leave the clinic. What kind of support do they need at home? Yeah, you know, you're talking about young children, and I have uh, do know, I have a friend, um, you know, how do your kids react to you? They don't necessarily react in the way you would think. I mean, when, you're, if, when your hair falls out and you've had chemotherapy, it can be scary to them, frightening. Uh, they don't want to bring their friends into the house. These are, you know, because they're, they're embarrassed. I mean, there are all those kinds of issues, I would imagine. Oh, I was so, I look back, I was so naive about what my daughter, who was almost about four and a half um, at the time, about her reactions. And I remember so clearly um, choosing to shave my head. My hair was falling out, and I just thought, I'm just going to shave my head. My husband's bald. So I thought, you know, it'll make it easier <laughs> to have two bald parents. Like, we'll yeah. make a joke out of it. Um, and I came back that afternoon. She came back from school, and I, you know, put on a smile and she looked at me and covered her eyes and wouldn't look at me for a full day after that. And it was, 
oh, I mean, I, it still gets me every time I think about it. Um, just those moments. And, you know, as a parent, I, you feel so unprepared. You feel, I felt tremendous guilt, um, and I didn't know what to say. And then it, it, that's, again, when I recommend, you know, seeking help um, to get the language about what to tell kids, um, because obviously you don't want to tell them too much about a diagnosis, depending on their age, but you don't want to tell them too little, um, because they hear the whispers. You know, I always say they're little little people with big ears, um, so you want to really plan for what you're going to tell them, and, and be prepared for reactions that are, you know, all over all over the map. What about other survivors? I mean, I, I know uh, people who want to be with other survivors and others who don't want to be with other survivors. They want to kind of detach. They don't want to be a part of the cancer community. They, so they kind of stay away. What's your, you know, experience, I guess? I think, obviously, it's a very personal choice. Um, I feel that it depends on how you participated in a group, you know, whether you were in a support group um, throughout your treatment, if, if you tend to be a more social person anyway. Um, in my case, I was in a clinical drug trial, so I was really alone. I didn't, you don't meet anyone in a trial, you know, you're, um, you're very isolated. And then I didn't have time to, to go to a support group. So it took me a while to kind of get in um, to the breast cancer community. And then once I was feeling better, I can say I definitely embrace um, going to conferences and other things, but it's emotionally very hard. Um, And that's the other part of it you have to think about is hearing other stories. Um, It's a lot. And, And I was surprised by how difficult it was. Yeah. So it's, 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 um, I guess it's a very complex arena. I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, there are just so many different kinds of issues, as you say, depending on your family, your own personality, the age of your kids, um, all of that. And it's, and obviously how you respond is unique to each, each um, family. What about friends like that you had before you were diagnosed with cancer? Did you lose any of those friends or were they not able to go through this, the, the trip with you? It's such a great point. Um, I always say cancer clears things out. You're either in or you're out, and it becomes um, clear very quickly. And I, I was shocked. I, one of my own bridesmaids from my wedding, I never heard from her. And I heard from her about a year into treatment. And I realized now it was because she had almost lost another one of her best friends um, to breast cancer. And she just literally couldn't, you know, wasn't capable of of being there for me. Um, And I understood that. And I think what cancer taught me is I can understand and I'm more forgiving. But at the same time, you know, you just see who shows up and I, you'll be surprised. I had total strangers who showed up for me who were kinder than people I had known for, you know, my entire life. So it can be a complete surprise. You don't, you know, I think with one of their chapters, um, something about expecting, knowing, or you don't know what to expect, you know, that, uh, as you say, you don't know who is going to show up for you. Uh, yeah. What about, yeah. Now here's, and I keep going back to you were young, 37, still young, <laughs> but uh, 
like your body image, all of that, you know, how you look and, and not just your hair and your whole body and your breasts and your, I mean, how did you deal with it? Because that's a huge issue. I mean, people say, well, I'm just happy to be alive, but yes, I'm happy to be alive. But also, you know, I have a whole um, image of myself and my body and how I connect with people. So how is that or how is that? It's ongoing. Oh, I really appreciate you bringing that up. I love <laughs> that phrase. I say it all the time. I'm happy to be alive, but yeah. um, dot, dot, dot. And, and as patients and survivors, we need to be able to say, you know, this still bothers me. You know, this is, this is a side effect and let's talk about it. Um, I was so surprised by what bothered me. For example, I thought losing my hair would be traumatic and that actually wasn't traumatic. I thought, oh, you know, having the mastectomy, if that's what it takes, I'm, I'm fine. I don't define myself by my body image. But that moment when the bandages were unwrapped um, was one of the worst moments of the entire time. Just seeing your body so radically changed um, it's it's unbelievable and I think um, having empathy and understanding to women and not treating it as just you know how many people just refer to it as a boob job um, and a mastectomy is not the same as a boob job and your not only the physical discomfort but just um, obviously how you look and then your choices for reconstruction and how um, you choose to move forward um, in that regard. Um, you know, in my case, I was so young, I thought, okay, I don't think I'm ready to go without reconstruction. I, as much as I didn't want more pain, I thought, you know what, I want to be in bathing suits and, and in the pool with the kids. You know, I want to kind of try to do as many normal things as I can. And so that's what made me choose reconstruction with saline implants. Um, but then the implants have to be swapped out every 10 years. So, you know, you have to prepare for that. So, um, it, you know, it's just a long way of saying uh, your body image is affected um, whether you think it will be or not. You know, the, 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 I'm using the word disfiguring when you first see it, I would imagine, um, that, as you say, it's a, it's a shock. And it's not like just, yeah, getting your boots yeah, enhanced I mean, or, yeah. It's nothing you can prepare for, even with, you know, quote, the best surgeons. Um, And what I would just add, I know you were asking me too about um, body image, back to that, just with my husband, who, again, I never thought I would feel uncomfortable or not sexy with my own husband, who, you know, I'd known for so long. And that was so shocking to me, is how I felt I didn't feel beautiful, you know, it's took so many months and so many tears to really to, to even take my shirt off in front of him. And I think, you know, it's important to talk about because you could have the, the best partner in the world, but um, it's, you know, there might be some moments where you, you feel very uncomfortable around them after the surgery. And how did he feel too? Because that's the, you know, your, your partner. I mean, you know, he or, or he may have the best intentions and yet you still feel uh, and, and be supportive and, and, and but you still don't feel it necessarily. Or, you know, if you can just talk a, maybe a little bit about how you perceived, how, how was he? I mean, because obviously yeah. he had his own. Yeah. 
Yes, um, and that's, you know, the guilt of the patient of saying, oh, I, you know, want to be with my partner, but I'm physically or emotionally unable to. Um, and, and he was so great and so patient and obviously, you know, said all the right things in terms of he's a beautiful, you know, regardless. Um, but it's, it's just this primal feeling of um, not only adjusting physically that your partner is often afraid to touch you and hurt you, um, but not knowing exactly what to say. Um, and I don't mean to sound like a poster child for therapy, but I, I can't say it enough. You know, going to a couple's therapist really helped us um, because there were often times where we couldn't say the things to each other that needed to be said. Um, and it was just easier to sit on a couch and talk to a neutral party and kind of get those feelings out um, uh, and oftentimes, too, we wrote things down, like wrote letters to each other, and that kind of eased the embarrassment of sitting face-to-face or, you know, lying in bed saying these things that no one wants to discuss. You know, the theme that keeps coming back as we're, you know, as we're talking really with everybody, all the people that you're connected to is this fear of not knowing what to say or feeling that you have to say the, have to say the right thing. And there really is no right thing, except if you're just honest with your feelings, uh, whether you're in, you know, whether it's your partner and you're talking, what we've been, you know, talking about how, uh, your sex life or it's your friends wanting to just give you comfort. But that whole thing about that fear of not knowing what to say, I guess, is uh, something that just sort of permeates the whole thing, the cancer diagnosis. Um, would you agree? Oh, I think it's, it's yeah. a wonderful summary of the experience. And I think so many of us are uncomfortable with silence. Um, so many of us you know, feel the need to fill um, a space with chatter and I would just say, you know, sometimes it's so nice just to sit. It was so wonderful to sit with someone who I knew, you know, loved and cared about me so much and would just sit by my bed or sit next to me during a chemo treatment and just be, you know, and just knowing that they were next to me was enough um, and nothing else needed to be said. You know, we only have a couple minutes left, and I had a lot more questions to ask you, but I kind of, <laughs> I want to, you know, in terms of just, this is more like having to do with doctors and staff, and, you know, uh, the, your, if you can say it in a minute, but like the experience with them, I assume there's teams of doctors, well, there's a team, but people that maybe be good doctors, but bad personalities, but they're part of the team, and how does that work in terms of having to, you know, taking this uh, getting treatment. Um, how was that for you? Oh, it was quite uh, yet another lesson um, landing in cancer land, um, realizing that I didn't know before that you, know, you can have this excellent medical team, but they might not ask about your kids. They don't necessarily you know, want to know your favorite color. Like that's, they're not there to be your friends. They, are, they should be empathetic, obviously, but their job is to heal your body. And so making sure that you're, you're not kind of putting your stuff on them and letting them do the physical job um, is very important. And yet, you know, knowing that if you do not like a doctor or someone in their t- on their team, if you have a visceral reaction, if you don't feel, 
cared for, you need to speak up. And then you can say, I don't, I want to switch doctors. Um, I didn't know you were allowed to do that. And um, as a patient, you need to remember, this is your body at the end of the day, and you need to participate in those decisions. Um, I think we're often very much rushed through the medical system. And, you know, you think of the questions later, you're like, oh, I should have make your list of questions, get ready to ask them, don't let them rush you off. Um, and, you know, again, just participate in the discussion of your own body and your treatment. Great. I mean, it's been great talking to you today. We have 30 seconds left. So <laughs> I we want people to go out and get your book, This is Cancer, Everything You Need to Know, From the Waiting Room to the Bedroom, Laura Holmes Hey, Dad. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, such a pleasure. Yeah. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is psychologist Kate Lund, author of Bounce, Help Your Child Build Resilience and Thrive in School, Sports, and Life. 
It seems that every day a new story comes out about a child who committed or attempted suicide because of the relentless onslaught of cruelty from their peers. Dr. Lund, a performance coach, is deeply concerned about the prevalence of cyberbullying in America and the importance of raising resilient children. She shares what teachers and parents can do to help children realize their potential by using a strengths-based approach to working with students and athletes. Uh, Dr. Lund has specialized training in medical psychology from Shriners Hospital in Boston, Mass. General Hospital and Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, affiliates of Harvard Medical School. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, Kate, you're a psychologist, but you're also a mother, and you've also suffered yourself or been a victim of bullying uh, as a result of some of the medical problems or the medical problem that you had as a child. So I would assume that this is all part of the reason that you have written this book, um, both as a professional, but also from your as a result of your own personal experiences. Exactly. That is right on. The book really brings together, uh, yeah, my own experiences as a child. Uh, I had a condition called hydrocephalus which um, is essentially a situation where the cerebral spinal fluid is not circulating through the brain properly. And um, that caused me, you know, a lot of time out of school as a young child, uh, time away from my peers, differences in appearance and that sort of thing. So, of course, there were challenges there that, that I had to overcome and, you know, had to learn early to be resilient and resilient. And that sort of sparked that early interest in resilience, which has really grown over time through my work as a psychologist, uh, 15 plus years. And then, of course, now, uh, more recently, my life as a mom uh, to 10-year-old twins who are, you know, actively engaged in the triumphs and challenges of life. So the book really brings together my, my lenses on all three of those, from all three of those directions. So resilience. Let's talk about what is resilience. I mean, you in your book, you talk. I guess you have you have pill, the the pillars of the resilient child. This is what this the book is about. How does one raise a child who is resilient, who won't succumb to when people are cruel or mean or bullying them? Because um, resilience is such a great word. Yeah. Yeah, so resilience is really, um, you know, that, that ability to uh, get back up and move forward following a challenge. Um, you know, it really is something that uh, builds inner strength and makes it possible, uh, you know, for children to manage the inevitable challenges, whether it be in the form of bullying or, you know, academic challenges sports-related challenges in school, anything that they might face makes it possible for them to manage those inevitable challenges. Um, And really, that resilient child is able to answer the question, you know, what's possible for me and what do I have to do to get there? Um, So that's sort of how I'm kind of looking at this bigger construct of resilience. And within the book, we outline, um, you know, pillars of the resilient child, like what are the things that we need to help develop in children to actually move them towards uh, this construct of resilience and being you know, Kate, I want to. I, I mean, I'm going to interrupt because I have I have a question. Do you think because we talk about? I mean, there's there is a I guess more of a a prevalence of this bullying and cyber bullying. Do you think that perhaps also 
part of the problem is that we're not raising resilient children so that they succumb to this. Do you know, we, we kind of look at the bullier and maybe spend, of course, um, this is what your book addresses, less time with the victim or, and what you're saying is that you don't have to be a victim. I mean, there would be less bullying if there were kids who were more resilient. Right. Well, yes, in a sense, exactly. So we really are in this book looking at how to help children build resilience, how to help them sort of get in touch with their strengths and use those strengths to their advantage such that you know, the bullying, whatever form it's taking, um, is less impactful. Easier said than done, though, uh, particularly with the, um, you know, increasing prevalence and uh, modalities for bullying these days uh, with cyberbullying and such, where bullying can really follow kids everywhere they go within the context of their lives. But um, the big idea is really... Um, building this social-emotional foundation in children very early on. So, in other words, helping kids to understand and appreciate individual difference um, among their peers and embrace those differences with curiosity and empathy. Um, And that helps on the uh, bullying side of the equation. So, cutting back on a bully's need to bully because they're understanding these differences. And then on the other side, we help children get in touch with their strengths and really um, use those to their advantage such that they can move through and beyond the bullying experience. But it's a process. Right, so it's a process, and it's a, you have these pillars. I want to go through each one of them. Uh, when do you start doing that? Let's say, you know, you start that with... What? As with toddlers, with, with, with very young children, you can start to build up their resilience. Exactly. Um, we want to start it, you know, as early as possible. You know, of course, in developmentally appropriate uh, ways, but really demonstrating um, how it's possible to get up and move forward when uh, something difficult or challenging happens. And you can do that as parents by modeling, by... Uh, talking with our kids in developmentally appropriate ways and really by um, showing them what's possible for them um, if they are able to get up and take that step forward even though something hard or, or difficult has happened. Yeah, I think sometimes the tendency for parents today is to, uh, I'm using a, kind of an old-fashioned word, but they kind of coddle their kids or helicopter parents or trying to make everything good for them and and make it you know comfortable and not wanting their children to suffer or and sort of do the opposite of building resilience in their children. Right. Yeah, and that can be um, and and that is a, a very real phenomenon today, and it's a very easy uh, you know pattern to fall into because we we don't want to see our children hurt or to see our children suffering. But the reality is that challenge is going to happen. And kids do need to be able to um, manage and face those challenges um, with some degree of competence such that they're preparing themselves for, you know, even greater challenges, which are going to emerge later in life. Um, So really, really important there to, you know, 
help a kid see that it's okay to fail. Um, it's okay for something not to go well the first time around. And it's possible to get up again and try that same thing from another angle. So how do you do that? Give us examples, with, you know, real examples with the, that you see in your coaching practice. Like um, what happens when you do this? How do you actually do this? Right. So, yeah. So in terms of the, the, the failing part or the having kids be okay when something doesn't go right the first time, um, that's actually really falling into this bigger construct of developing courage, pillar four that we talk about in, in our book. Um, and as we know, courage is so important to help um, a child try something that might seem scary, Right. And it's really uh, encouraging the child to take that first step forward, um, you know, out of their comfort zone uh, and do it anyway, even if it feels scary and be okay if it doesn't go right the first time. And so an example that, that, you know, has come up recently is a young boy who really, really wants to be a baseball player, but he is petrified of getting into the batter's box um, when they're making that transition from machine pitch to kid pitch. And um, basically, the big idea there is within the supportive um, scaffold to really encourage him to get up into that batter's box despite the fear, um, to arm him with the you know proper batting techniques and such, um, support from teammates and coaches, support from you as a parent, um, but really push him to move beyond that fear and take that first swing, so to speak. I know that's a, a cliche, but, um, and by doing that over time, we're really helping kids to desensitize to the fear and see that, oh, that might've been scary, but hmm, I can do this. And it's, so it becomes about seeing the possibilities and moving through the fear towards those possibilities. So that's courage. Let's, let's give an example of one of the other pillars of resistance, or of res- resistance, of resilience. Right. Yeah, so backing up then, um, so to the first pillar, tolerating frustration and managing emotions, that's huge, right? Because if a child isn't able to tolerate frustration and or manage their emotions, it's going to be really hard to get back up and move forward following a challenge. And, you know, this can really present itself in so many different ways. Um, but I do a lot of work on this in uh, schools. And, you know, we can probably all imagine the child in the classroom, you know, her face is turning red mind is going blank, you know, because that math problem that she's trying to do is really stumping her or, you know, all of a sudden what she wanted to say in that book report presentation is just gone from her mind. And at this point, right, kids can become very frustrated. Emotions can start to to take over and spin out of control. And what happens then is that the child just shuts down. And they aren't going to realize their potential with that math problem or that presentation or what have you. So 
we really want to help children through, and there, there are many ways we can do this, but to develop those self-regulation skills, um, those skills to really um, bring themselves down from that place when their emotions are spinning out of control, to really self-regulate, um, you know, their emotions in a sense. And that really helps them to regain a sense of control when things feel out of control. And this principle can be applied across so many different challenges that, that, that kids are facing today. Yeah. And I think that, well, then your book is really sort of a must read for teachers, for parents, because this, the, as you're describing frustration, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, parents at home with that frustration level with, with toddlers or with young kids when they're trying to learn how, a new skill. And, you know, they get so frustrated, they throw the toy across the room or the puzzle or whatever it is. And it, it sort of starts right there, helping them to deal with the, and, and really taking time and and um, helping them to, as you say, lower kind of to help build up their tolerance uh, for managing their emotions. Um, so the next thing, exactly. yeah, go ahead. Back. Exactly. And just one quick point there is as kids are able to regulate their emotions in this way and really gain a sense of control over them, they become um, naturally more resilient to the stressors that they're going to face. What about kids? I mean, you know, a lot of kids now go at, you know, even as, well, even as babies, but even let's say two and three years old, they go to daycare and they are probably exposed to a lot more, I would assume, frustration, um, challenges uh, that because they're in, in, in group situations than they do, say, if they were at home, for instance, and they were sort of one-on-one with a parent or a caretaker. Um, so is it different for kids who are like in a group situation, say at a very young age, um, in terms of being able to, um, the challenges of becoming resilient? Well, you know, it, it all depends on the child. Um, you know, because as we know, some children are more resilient from the get-go than others. Um, but with this model, we're really talking about bolstering the resilience of all kids, regardless of where they start. And it is true, you know, kids who are in um, child care settings, early daycare, you know, they're definitely faced with managing, you know, situations uh, related to interacting with other kids and sharing and that sort of thing, which perhaps those children who are at home aren't exposed to as early, but, you know, it's not to say that one way of going is, you know, better or worse than the other. It's just, it just sort of is. And all kids um, were able to sort of bolster the resilience of all kids, regardless of their, their starting point. Okay. The next one, here's one. Uh, do you, you talk about navigating friendships and social pressure. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so that's that's really, really important. Um, you know, it comes right after this idea of tolerant frustration and managing emotions. And really what we're talking about there is, um, you know, we've mentioned it already a little bit, say a little bit more about sort of building this strong social-emotional foundation, um, really helping kids to understand and appreciate uh, differences among each other and among themselves uh, in a way that helps them to be friends, um, 
you know, you know, be friends to their peers, but also uh, to be able to stand up for themselves when, you know, a friendship goes awry or what have you in the terms of, you know, a friend pushing them to do something that they don't want to do or they're not comfortable with, that kind of thing. Um, and really the social-emotional foundation rooted in this sense of understanding and accepting individual difference is so, so important um, moving forward in, you know, building friendships, navigating friendships over time. Yeah, so that that's critical. That's one of the, the pillars of uh, resilience. And I think one of the resisting peer pressure, that's a really difficult thing to do. This is all part of this navigating friendships and social pressure. Uh, I, I think today particularly, obviously, the internet, social media, all of that, resisting peer pressure um, is must be a, it's a really, that's a, that's a huge challenge today, isn't it, for, for kids? So difficult, yes. And, you know, this idea of helping them to learn early um, how to navigate friendships, social pressures, that sort of thing, so, so important. And we can do this by really helping kids to understand who they are, understand sort of where they're coming from, um, the value structure of their family system or, you know, their, their home situation. You know, who are they and what's important to them and really helping them to um, develop a strong sense of this early on is so, so important such that that makes it easier to resist the pressures of another kid saying, hey, let's go do this. And the child knows, hmm, it doesn't sound like a very smart thing to do or it might not be good for me or what have you. Um, so really helping kids to understand who they are, where they're coming from, and what their strengths are and how they can use those to their advantage is very, very important in this domain. And in addition to this, you talk about building motivation. So how do you build motivation? And, you know, starting like when you're with your child when they're very, very young. (laughs) Right. And so motivation is is a big construct, right? And so we've got extrinsic motivation and we've got intrinsic motivation. And so earlier on in life, you know, it's more common to have – extrinsic motivators um, be an important piece of um, the equation. You know, wanting a child to read, for example, a child who might not like to read um, early on uh, in school, you know, you might, you know, suggest that if they read X amount, you might get a pack of Star Wars cards or something like that. That would be an example of an extrinsic motivator. And that can be very helpful early on um, in helping kids to move forward with things that they either want or need to do in some way. But really what we want to do over time is we want to help a child uh, to build intrinsic motivation, um, which is that motivation from the, that comes from the inside out. Um, which is sort of centering around a child's true passions, what they really want to do, what goal do they want to reach. And we can really help kids um, to build this kind of motivation by, you know, encouraging them to be involved in areas where they have demonstrated 
aptitude or a strong interest, um, which is really, in fact, helping them to get in touch with their passions. Um, we can model this by doing the same type of thing ourselves with the hope that, um, you know, the intrinsic motivation is going to grow because we know that if a child is sort of operating based only on extrinsic motivation um, as they go along and as they get older, whatever it is they're doing is less likely to stick if that passion, if that fire is not burning from the inside out in the form of intrinsic motivation. Yeah, and then they always need someone to tell them how great they are or how well they're doing because it's really not it, that internal. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. and that's yeah. not reality, right? We, if, if that child who's always used to hearing from someone else, wow, you're the best at this, you're the greatest at that, you know, when they get to college, it's going to be difficult because that's not going to continue, most likely. Yes, most likely it definitely does continue. We only have a couple minutes left. We can go through the next two pillars or we can, because I want to kind of maybe if in, a, in a minute or so, if you can describe the last one, which is kind of creating optimism, because I think that's so important, creating optimism. And that really does help one to be resilient. Yes, yes, absolutely. And optimism is so important um, because as we know, you know, at times things can feel so hopeless. And, you know, the reality is the challenge is real um, and it's easy to then fall into a pattern of ignoring the good things that are happening around us each day and focusing just on the bad or difficult things. So by helping kids to develop optimism, we're really helping them to get in touch with the things that did go well, um, that are good uh, around them or the good things that happened in their day. And we can do this by really helping them to cultivate a sense of gratitude by writing about or talking about what they're grateful for each day. And really also to notice um, where they do have some control over the outcome of a given situation. So always um, emphasize the, and we have to, we have. 30 seconds left. So oh, I hate sure. to cut you off, but I want to mention the book again because there's so much, you know, obviously we've been talking about a lot, but there's so much more in the book. Um, and I've been talking to Kate Lund, psychologist, author of Bounce, Help Your Child Build Resilience and Thrive in School, Sports, and Life. Um, sort of a, a must read for parents, educators, community leaders, and anyone who has little, who has children. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.